Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's start our morning with a little science, shall we? So take a look at the animal kingdom. I think it's pretty fair to say that having tails is pretty common. Animals need them. Tails are used for balance. They're used for navigation, for communication. So why don't humans have them? Well, we did, apparently, but over time, they disappeared. Why, though? Well, Dr. Boach, he is a geneticist and researcher at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT and has studied this and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Simi. Uh, it's glad to talk with you. Now, Dr. Chi, did humans have tails once upon a time? Uh, well, it's actually, when, you, when we look at the vertebrate uh, animal kingdom, it's actually a feature that's shared by all the vertebrates. So in human, uh, when we look at the developmental stage of around week five or six, we actually see a pretty long tail. And then, like, you know, like our tail is an extension of the spine. It contains the vertebral or at that stage during the embryonic development, it's called somites. So during that time, we have like up to 15 somites, which is pretty long, I would say. So during our development, we had one, but like during later stage, our tail cannot be sustained. So we cannot, we don't have an external tail. So what happened to it? Like over what period of time did we lose this? So uh, this is going to date back to a very long time ago. Like when we look at the animal kingdom, we share the similar feature with all the apes, including like chimpanzee, gorilla, or a gudan, or gibbon. So this is a trait that we lose the ability to develop an external tail um, back to around 25 million years ago. So during that time, um, the uh, the ancestors of hominoids, humans and apes, um, diverged from the uh, the other um, monkeys. Now this this other lineage is called uh, old world monkeys, including the uh, baboon or uh, macaques uh, in the extinct species. So during that time, around 25 million years ago, um, there is a mutation that we discovered that plays a critical role in leading us to be tailless. So that's like the main discovery from our current study. Right. So Dr. Chi, that's what's so remarkable about your work is that you have able, you've been able to actually isolate the gene that made this happen. Um, in short, yes. Um, even though, like, as a biologist, um, uh, we have to be careful because this gene, the, 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 the corresponding gene has been discovered for 30 years. But we discover a mutation that is hidden in this gene that has never been discovered before. Um, then this specific mutation is making this gene to make different, uh, different uh, products. You can think of like a, a, a movie director who make the raw materials of a gene, and uh, they can uh, they will like uh, do the uh, splice of the raw materials 
to then to make a for a final product, make, make a final movie. But the different ways how you like、mm, piece together the raw product, you will make probably different stories, right? So this is a process in a gene called splicing. So、um, the gene also find different ways、uh, to do the splicing and、so、to make different forms of the protein. So this mutation we discovered it's very,、uh, it's unique to the homologous humans and apes. That like when humans and apes will make two different forms of、uh, the protein, but other、uh, tailed monkeys they can only make one copy. So、um, because of this way that we are making two different copies, so we. This, this, this mutation then disrupts the、uh, developmental program of the tail. Right, you just explained it so well. I understand exactly using that movie analogy. That makes perfect sense. So then, Dr. Chi, how how did that mutation become the dominant one? How did it kind of take over? That's a great question. So.、Um, We、uh, we value like how we ask the question, right? So、um, in our study, if we want to make it precisely, it is the、uh, uh, addressing a question of how we lost our tail or what genetic changes made us to be tailless, and then in terms of、um, like what may, really make this、uh, trait being dominant, it's a question about like why we lost our tail. Um, so this re- definitely relates to、um, whether losing the tail gave our、uh, homologous ancestors some kinds of、uh, evolutionary advantage.、Um, so there, there is、um, some hypothesis related to this. But as to be clear, like this is hypothesis as was as I was describing it. So、um, it, losing the tail may relate to、um, changing the locomotion behavior. So you know, like、um, the early ancestors is living a more arboreal lifestyle, like living on the trees.、Um, but losing losing on the ta- and the tail is like important for、um, balancing while living a arboreal life. So losing the tail may relate to the transition from living arboreal life to moving more on the ground and helping、uh, eventually to move in a more orthograde and bipedal locomotion style. So、right. we hypothesize、uh, that this relates to this selective advantage、um, that drives the tail loss. But like exactly what are these require more molecular but also、um, uh, fossil record studies. So as we walked more upright. And on two feet, the tail became less and less important.、Uh, I won't say in that way, actually, because、um, for uh, 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 bipedal locomotion in early humans, that only and it's from current、uh, fossil records that only happened roughly、um, like two or three million years ago.、Um, that's a fairly close、uh, evolutionary time,、um, but the tail. Uh, is uh, was lost around 25 million years ago. So what I'm su- suggesting is、um, the tail loss may、uh, facilitate this process, even though the actual orthograde of bipedal locomotion may not happen exactly at that time during、uh, and, and the time of tail loss. Right, fascinating work, Dr. Chi. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad you know, we can share the story here. Oh, it's a great story. That is Dr. Bochi, who's a geneticist and researcher at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT, and he is on the team that helped to discover this actual mutation. So that the fact there was a gene mutation 
that in a long, over a long period of time resulted in humans losing their tail, uh, he is able to find that actual mutation that made that happen, which is fascinating. That's quite a leap forward too. This is Mornings with Simi. Like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. Chef and apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side, and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of a can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. Uh Uh-huh. Do you know somebody like that? I'm sure maybe you're that person. You go to a restaurant, you can't have it just exactly like what is listed on the menu. You feel like you need to make a few alterations. Our Scott Shantz is with us now to talk about that because Scott, I, I, some restaurants pride themselves on being flexible, but I would imagine that not everybody's happy about it. Yeah, I think that that is true. And I like, I love the restaurant scene. We have this awesome restaurant scene here in Vancouver. And I went to like a fancier place, not fancy, but kind of like hipster, cool, like niche, fancy type of place in East Van not too long ago. And it said very clearly on the menu, please no alterations because the chef like takes a pride in what they create. And if you alter it, it's like their creation is not the way that they created it. And so they want you to just take it as it comes. Here's here's what's in it. If you have allergies or dietary restrictions, don't come here. Boy, okay. Now that's that's really going to come up against people who feel like, well, wait a minute, I'm I'm paying for a service, therefore I would like that service the way I want it. Yeah, but I think the the chef and like in this case would push back and just say, well, this is what I'm making. If you don't like it, don't come here. Like if you don't like this movie that I made, you don't have to see it. If you don't like this piece of right. art, you don't have mm-hmm. to look at it. And I I'm seeing that like more and more and more. Like I worked in a restaurant for many, many, many years and we prided ourselves on making it the way the customer wanted, you know, but as you would go back, like you would take someone's order and go back to the kitchen and say like what Meg Ryan said in Harry Met Sally there. And you could just see the chefs all roll their eyes, you know, okay. they I, hate I, that. Does it depend on the type of restaurant you're going to perhaps? If you are going to a fine dining Michelin starred establishment, then I feel as though, yes, the chef has the ability and the right to say, this is what we are presenting you are paying good money for this and this is what you will get. If you are going to something more casual, is it a menu more easily adaptable? Yeah, and I I get what you're saying there and I think that that makes the most sense. But I also like they've done some some um, uh, research into this and most chefs who work at those fine dining establishments because they're professionals, they say, oh, no, of course, we, we you're our guest. We're more than happy to accommodate whatever makes you most comfortable here. And Simi, I, you know, I grew up in Abbotsford and uh, I was out there recently uh, visiting some friends who work in sort of a blue collar area of the city. And uh, they were like, oh, come for lunch with us. Come for lunch. And we went to this like really awesome, but sort of divey diner. Love those places. Totally. And I dared to ask for like something like no hot sauce on my sandwich, something like that. And the look of disdain that I got from the server at this place, because they were just like, look, they were unashamedly who they were, you know? And it was just like, no, this is what we do. That's the attitude of the place. Yeah. And I thought that that was cool as well, you know? So it's like, I think you can get both at, at both places. But I also, like, is there is there a, a, 
uh, uh, something on the consumer that it's like you're going out to eat. You're choosing to go to this type. Like, don't go to a, a spicy food place and then complain that the food is hot. You know, like you have to take some responsibility for your uh, decisions and your diet. Like, is it kind of like you? I wouldn't so go to saying, your house and ask you to make food a certain way. I would eat whatever you're serving. Let's just use the example of being gluten free. Sure. It's not a like, you know, it's not a like I say, a deadly peanut allergy. That's, I think, a different situation. If you are gluten free, yeah, it'll cause you upset. You need to not have gluten. Is it fair for you to then go in there and start asking questions? If the restaurant has not advertised that they can do this for you, because some menus will say this item can be made gluten-free, like it just has to tell you. Yeah. Is it reasonable for someone with not allergies but food sensitivities, let's say, to go in and start saying can you change this? Can you change this? I don't don't think so. I think that like some of that stuff is pretty – um, like I think you can ask for – you can ask if it has it in it. Like, hey, is this gluten or is there any nut products or fish products in this? Um, and then, oh, OK, there is. Great. I just won't order that. But I think asking a chef to change it is – it just feels bold. It feels like um, – rude is a strong word, but it's like – I think it's like walking up to that line. And again – Lots of these restaurants like to see them as hosts and you're their guest. Like I wouldn't come as a guest to someone's house and then make start making demands about how I want the meal to be served. You wouldn't? <laughs> no. Simi, if you I came say, to your house. Hey, can can I have some salt on that or do you pass a salt shaker? Do you know what I mean? Like some places won't even do that. They'll say, no, no, it is properly salted. Some right. chefs find it very insulting if you want salt on your food. Yeah. I th- And I think that like I that's sort of the experience that I like. I want to have it the way that the chef intended it to be served. You know, and I and think I'm sure that there are people out there who say, no, no, no. If I'm going to pay for the food, I think I can request a few alterations. Yeah. Now, I think I've it never on done the place. that. I think I've never done that, place. but then I've been for- fortunate I don't have severe food allergies. It's not a huge problem for me. But some people, they like things how they like them. Yeah, and I'm not surprised that um, certain chefs get bothered by that because, to your point, some people like things how they like them, and I think those people need to loosen up a little bit. You know, they need to. The whole point of going out and trying a different restaurant and a different experience is to experience something. So if you're going to ask them to make it the way that you quote unquote like, you're just getting the same thing that you would always get because you're just getting it made at a different restaurant. Try the thing the way the chef insists on trying it. Maybe you'll be surprised and it'll Hmm. be fantastic. I would actually love to hear from people on this. If you are one of those people, do you have a problem asking for alterations to what you're ordering in a restaurant? Or do you think, no, 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 that's that's too much trouble. I'm just going to take it how they've, they've got it here. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Hey, good morning, Simi. All right, let's talk about the World Cup because we're still trying to get answers about how much this is going to cost. Yes, the government says it has a budget estimate, a ballpark estimate of what it's going to cost with the addition of two more games to the schedule and in light of the $80 million budget jump in Toronto. So the government does have a ballpark estimate. They're just refusing to give it to the public. So that's led to some speculation, as often happens when government won't tell you what numbers they have. And a lot of attention, Simi, has focused on the fine print of the budget we were given last year. There's a reference. There's a lot of money in there for contingency funds. And in the fine print, 
there is a little statement saying this money is available to help pay for hosting FIFA. So $3 billion in the contingency fund for this year. Uh, wow. Uh, the government says they're not giving FIFA a blank check, but $3 billion is a lot of money. <clears throat> and uh, the finance minister got up in the legislature yesterday and said, oh, come on, the entire <laughs> $3 billion isn't for FIFA, for goodness sakes. It's there, yes, if uh, there's extra costs coming, but most of the money is there for floods and wildfires and crises and all that. Uh, it was kind of entertaining, actually, to hear Katrina Conroy say this, because because of the speculation, she did have to clarify that the $3 billion is not all for the World Cup. In the hallway outside, Simi, knowing FIFA, I teased her. I said, have you told FIFA that they can't have the entire $3 billion? Because <laughs> you know what? FIFA's like, Simi. They, they, they probably already spent it in their minds. So anyway, it's amusing, but there's nothing funny about the government knowing it's going to cost a lot more and not telling us what it is. Right. But that there is some of that money is for this, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No question. Yeah. And there's an interesting, you know, when you're looking around for evidence and they won't tell you what numbers they have, you look at other things. So my colleague, Dan Fomano, who covers City Hall, talked to City Hall in Vancouver because Vancouver is going to have to pay the freight on this, too. <clears throat> so he asked the city, what's their current estimate? And they said, well, funny you should ask. Uh, city of Vancouver says it's going to cost Vancouver, just Vancouver's share, $230 million. And Simi, that's up from $130 million when they initially uh, estimated it when Vancouver was first awarded status. So uh, let's see. Now, here's a clue. When the provincial government announced what it was going to cost to host FIFA way back when Vancouver was awarded seven or uh, awarded the uh, the games uh, that was in june 2022 the province said all in that includes the city and the provincial share was going to be uh 250 million dollars and that's when the city was saying its share was only 130 million dollars so if the city's share is almost doubled seems like a pretty good guess the provincial share has also doubled, so that the all-in cost is, what, approaching half a billion dollars would be my guess. I throw that note out, number out there, Sammy, because the province won't tell us what the real number is, so we're going to speculate. Well, guess. that's exactly it, right? If there's, if there's no information, we're going to fill the vacuum with the worst-case scenario because it feels like that's why they would not tell us. I think that's a very good guess. You know, uh, Conroy did say in the House yesterday when she said, relax, FIFA's not getting the entire $3 billion, that there will be a number forthcoming soon. And so maybe in a few weeks, maybe even less than that, if there's enough pressure on the government. But yes, they are reworking the numbers because the original guess was based on us getting five games, we're now getting seven games. Toronto says its estimate, extra $80 million, was because Toronto was getting six games instead of five. So we're getting seven instead of five. So again, you can do the math and go, well, if the number of games has increased that much, you can guess the budget has probably increased at least as much as it has in Toronto and maybe more. 
This is going to be so interesting to watch this unfold, Vaughn, because I remember when we originally turned this down and like people were upset that this has been turned. Oh, we're missing out on this opportunity. So (laughs) when the bill starts to come in, this is just going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, It will be, uh, you know, and it's true that people were upset. But when John Horgan turned it down, he got some praise, too, for not allowing an international organization to dictate terms. Remember what Horgan said. We read the proposed agreement with FIFA and it looked to us like a blank check and we weren't willing to sign it. Well, here's one of the questions that our colleagues in the news media have been asking the government ever since it turned around and went the other way and supported FIFA and then got Vancouver designated instead of Edmonton. What changed in the agreement with FIFA that made it no longer a blank check? What did you get? What did you offer that was better than what Edmonton offered? And what did you get? that was different from the original blank check agreement. Because again, what I know about FIFA, they do not respond to shakedowns by governments that want to host a city. So uh, Richard Zussman, I think Richard tells me, Sammy, he's asked the government more than a dozen times. Really? Those questions. What did you get that wasn't in the original agreement? And what did you offer that was better than what Edmonton offered? They will not answer that question. They claim, oh, it's all subject to a non-disclosure agreement. Well, NDAs tend to suit the purposes of the people who sign them, not the purposes of the taxpayers who are paying the cost. Mm -hmm. So they won't tell us. That's another long list of questions. I'll point out, as I said to you yesterday, Simi, you go down to Seattle, they've already released their contract. They made it public, right? There it is. You don't like the games. You do like the games. You can read what you agreed to. They've done it down in Seattle. Why can't they do it here? Why won't they do it here? Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. We're talking more about the child care situation because, Vaughn, it feels like the questions keep coming, but we're still, again, like with the FIFA situation, still not getting any answers. Uh, yes, but there's some interesting stuff going on. So earlier this month, the cabinet signed an order regarding federal funding to BC for childcare. So Ottawa gives the province money for childcare. And as of this year's budget, Ottawa is spending more providing childcare in British Columbia than the BC government is spending on childcare. This is a government that, you know, never stops boasting about its commitment to $10 a day childcare. Although they've changed the messaging around that as well. And I'll get to that in a minute, but they, they taking this federal money and they're claiming credit that is, this is our program. Well, actually, now Ottawa is paying more than 50% of cost. This cabinet order they signed earlier this month, what was interesting, Simi, what it does is it it's, takes a bunch of the money that's come from Ottawa in past years for childcare and pushed it into the future. They're giving themselves the power to spend that money in future years because here's what's going on. All the money Ottawa is sending, BC isn't actually spending it. They aren't spending it because they haven't provided enough spaces for childcare in BC, which is a criticism the opposition has made. Uh, They haven't opened enough centers. There isn't enough $10 a day childcare. They can't, they say, attract enough workers to provide childcare services for the kind that the government wants. 
And so they're not spending the money that's coming from Ottawa. This, and it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars that they're pushing down the road for future years. Um, they can do that. Uh, don't try this at home, folks. But this is the sort of thing government can do. But it simply illustrates what, you know, the, the storyline out there, which I think is well documented, which is the New Democrats talk a big line on $10 a day child care, but they haven't provided much of it. Only 10% of the licensed spaces in VC are $10 a day. Yet that was the big promise in the NDP election platform in 2017 and in 2020. And see me, you know when they're really in trouble, they change the language around the promise. The Minister for Child Care, Mitzi Dean, now says an average $10 a day child care. It's no longer universal $10 a day child care for everybody that wants child care. It's now an average. So you might pay 20, but somebody's paying a little less. So that brings the average down. It's this program is in serious, serious trouble, and it's in double trouble because the government won't admit it. Hmm. That one little word makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, hmm. you so, got you to listen carefully. It's like the cabinet orders, right? So, I mean, you know, they, when the government actually does something and puts a, says it's going to do something, puts out a press release, when it actually does something, the cabinet signs an order that changes things. Those are posted later. And to be honest, I don't always read them when they come out. You know, you have to look back. It was the BC United opposition that flagged this cabinet order and our colleague Rob Shaw has written about it. Uh, but uh, when you read the fine print, what they're doing is admitting to themselves they're not spending all of the money that Ottawa is sending out to BC for childcare. And so they're going to try to hold it back and spend it in a future year so Ottawa doesn't just claw it back. That's what's going on here. You know, and Simi, you know, I'm no big fan of the federal government, but you see right here what infuriates Ottawa about cost-shared programs with provinces. The federal government sends BC money for childcare. BC reduces its share, doesn't spend the money, turns around and tries to hang on to the dough for a future year. And then Ottawa goes, well, we're not even getting credit out there for what we're doing. And, you know, <laughs> why should we even cost share? It's no wonder the federal government insists on auditing and making sure the province actually spends the money and tries to claw it back because they can't depend on the provinces to fairly share the credit for cost-shared programs. No kidding. Okay, I also wanted to ask about what's going on in Victoria, mm. uh, having to do with the gangs and schools. Like, what is happening? Well, the uh, school board in Victoria voted to kick the police liaison program out, to end it, to terminate it. And the police chief in Victoria and some other people have been pushing back and saying, look, uh, police in schools, it's a critical part of an anti-gang strategy. The gangs are recruiting in the schools. And I just heard the global report, uh, kids as young as 11 years old, the chief police in Victoria, Del Manac, is saying we've got to do this. We've got to bring it back. There's some very interesting pushback against the school board in this. Uh, people can go to the blog of Andrew Weaver, remember him. He has not lost his turn of phrase. He is accusing the Victoria School Board of basically being ideologically driven and ignoring the evidence that school liaison programs with police are effective 
And Weaver is speaking not just as the former leader of the Greens and a professor at the University of Victoria and a climate scientist, but he was a member of the police board in Oak Bay. And he says, when this thing came out, this drive to, to end uh, police liaison in the school, he looked at the research that was coming out on this and he found most of it to be bogus. He says, the, uh, the, uh, basically the school boards got it wrong. Yesterday, Mike Farnworth, Solicitor General was asked, Simi, and to his credit, he says, the chief of police in Victoria is right. The school's uh, liaison program with police is critical to combating gangs recruitment in schools. And he says the school board in Victoria should reverse direction on this and do the right thing and allow the police to come back. Now, has the school board said anything about this? And when you're getting pressured, there's a lot of provincial politicians that are putting some pressure on you. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on the school board here. Uh, You know, I haven't seen the school board come back on this. Uh, Originally, they were ideologically, uh, Reaver's right, the school board here was ideologically committed. They bought a poorly documented argument by the province's human rights commissioner. That's one of the things Weaver pointed out that a lot of the supposed data for what's wrong with police in schools is not borne out by an actual review of the peer-tested scientific studies of this. And if you really want to get into trouble with Andrew Weaver, just say you were following the, the science when you weren't. Uh, he has been very effective on this, uh, and I think he's probably helped sway Mike Farnworth on the issue as well. So interesting. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. We have This is Mornings with Simi. But right now we're checking in with our Scott Shantz because he's going to talk about something called winter warming syndrome. What is that, Scott? Yeah, I had heard this term sort of popping up around the internet and I sort of was... I had to know more because it definitely feels like we're in winter here in BC, but it definitely feels warmer. And one of the things that bothers me the most about it, Simi, is skiing because I'm a huge skier and we have a huge ski uh, thing going on here in the lower mainland and it's being dramatically affected. So I wanted to know, like, is this climate change? Is this La Nino? Like, what is winter warming season? So I got in touch with Richard Rood. He's a professor at... um, Uh, University of Michigan in climate and space sciences and engineering. And I just started by asking him, can you explain to me what winter warming syndrome is? Yes, I can explain it. Um, Last year when I was doing some interviews, it became clear to me that I was repeating what I felt was a set of symptoms of what was happening with the winters. It was getting warmer. There's a lot of moisture available there, so you were seeing more and more wetness. You were seeing a lot of winter flooding uh, and seeing a lack of ice on the lakes. And it occurred to me that we often see all of these things as different. If you look in the press, you'll see a story that there's no ice or you'll see there's a huge flood. But these things are all related, and they're very consistent story of the winters becoming warmer and warmer. Okay, now, is this different than climate change? Is this just an updated term for climate change? What's the difference there, and how does that fit into the whole uh, spectrum of climate change? 
I would say if you're looking at, you know, climate change and the general idea that there's one thing that is for certain going on with climate change, and that is that the planet is warming, what this is is the effect on winter. So climate change will have effects on really everything. And what this is is this is sort of the story of what's happening with winter. And to me, it's particularly interesting, and it is more robust than a lot of the other stories, because in the winter, you don't have the sun doing direct warming. And so if you are seeing a warming during the cold season, that means that heat is coming in from other parts of the world. And so what you're seeing here is that as the storms go by, and what storms do is transport heat. As the storms go by, they're bringing warmer and warmer air um, into a region. You know, so it, this is global warming. This is a robust measure of the warming of the planet. We have uh, another term here on the West Coast, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, um, El Nino or La Nina. The, the, there are these two things that we hear every couple of years primarily right now because they affect our ski season so much. Is that is yeah. that winter warming syndrome? So El Nino and La Nina are oscillations, variability, that are primarily measured in the tropical Pacific Ocean and primarily measured by the, the eastern side of the tropical Pacific getting warmer or cooler. When there's an El Nino, um, you see sort of enhanced moisture with these atmospheric rivers. And what you see is that each El Nino and each La Nina step, um, each one coming one after another, is getting warmer and warmer. What you see from my perspective, the way I describe it, is that each El Nino is sort of like taking two steps up in warming the planet. And then historically, a La Nina has been like one step back. So what you're doing is, is taking these steps up and back. It'll be interesting this year because as the La Nina comes on, so far it's not been stepping back. It's just remained extraordinarily warm at this point. Yeah, like here in Vancouver, uh, we have a, a great ski culture. You know, Whistler Mountain is close, and we have three yeah. great local mountains right here. And, you know, we have had rough years before, but this definitely feels like one of the roughest years in my history, for sure. And I'm 42 years old. And it also, like, people were talking a couple of weeks ago, it felt like spring, like 11, 12, 13 degrees here. Is this is something that we're going to see continuing and or or do you anticipate that like you know this is this is what's happening now and it won't always be like this or are we on this trajectory and it's set we're on a trajectory and it's set to remain warm and to get warmer so in a place like vancouver and in the cascades i expect to see the snow line to continue to go up the mountains and i expect it will ultimately largely become a rainy environment that's Professor Richard Rood. Uh, he's a professor of climate and space science and engineering at the University of Michigan. And that last moment there really caught me, Simi, because in Vancouver, I already describe it as rainy. And he yeah. was like, expect it to get 
rainy. And it's like, that's what we already have. Is it going to get rainier? Yeah, I wanted to ask him, you know it's like that here, right? Yeah, and he was like, oh, no, no, there's more rain coming. Uh, This continues. So winter warming syndrome refers to the symptoms of climate change, which we are experiencing right now. Okay, the rainy part is interesting because we've also had these drought problems. Yes. So does that mean that that is will mitigate those drought problems? That will it'll be rainier, or will we have these drier periods and rainier periods? Yeah, I think in the winter we're going to have rainier periods. Is what yeah. is what he is sort of saying there? You know, because anytime that we would ha- we'll have the same amounts of rain we always have, and anytime that there might be snow, more rain, more moisture. Well, then we better find a way to hold on to that water somehow. Great point. Yes, exactly. Thank you for that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. Has anyone ever asked you to take a personality test? I mean, they are all over the internet. And I find that more and more occupations like jobs, companies are asking you to take a bit of a personality test too before they proceed with your application. Oh, and I know people love to talk about Myers-Briggs and what personality type they are. But really, how accurate are these tests? Are they good at predicting personalities or how you'll act in a certain situation? Can they tell you how likely you are to succeed in life? Well, let's ask our next guest. Dr. Spencer Greenberg is with us now, a mathematician and entrepreneur in social science. Dr. Greenberg, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. How accurate are these personality tests anyway? That's a great question. We put to the test different personality tests, in particular, the big five personality test, which is the gold standard used in academia, and the a, and a Myers-Briggs style test. So it's based on this, these constructs that uh, Young, the, the famous psychologist Young, created. And these are very commonly used tests throughout the world. We also, as a control group, tested astrological sun signs like Pisces, Aries. And what we did is we administered these tests to uh, over 500 people, and then we try to use each test to predict things about those people, like how many friends they have, have they been arrested, uh, have they gotten awards at their work. And we had some really interesting findings, which is that the astrological sun signs didn't work at all. They were completely useless. Um, and Myers-Briggs type tests, they tested about halfway between astrological sun signs and the big five. So the big five test actually was much more accurate whereas the Myers-Briggs style test was only about half as accurate. Wait a minute, Dr. Greenberg. Are you telling me that my horoscope is just completely wrong? Well, that's a good question. Um, Signs like your zodiac signs, like Pisces, Aries, et cetera, we found that they were completely unable to predict facts about people's lives. So we what? tested 37 different facts <laughs> that we were not able to predict any of them. <laughs> Shocker, right? I know, I'm just laughing so hard because like how many people, and like I'm guilty of it, I'll check my horoscope, but it's like a daily thing for people. What do you mean it's not accurate? Yeah, well, to be fair, we only tested sun signs. There's obviously more complex forms of astrology. We're actually developing a test for those as well right now, but we haven't tested those yet. But uh, your sun sign, whether you're Pisces or Aries, yeah, doesn't seem to predict anything about you as far as we were able to see. Okay, so let's talk about this one that you said is is not bad, the big five. What is that? So the big five is really fascinating. What psychologists did many years ago is they took all of the words in the English language that could be used to describe one's personality, and they asked people, does this word apply to you? Does this word apply to you? And so on. And then they did statistical analysis, and they found out that if there were certain words, if you said they applied to you, like being social, then other words likely applied to you, like saying you're friendly. And they found that there really are five clusters of words 
that apply to people. So if you have one of the words in the cluster, you probably have the others. And these, these, this is how they come up with these big five factors of personality. So it's completely based on statistical analysis of the way people describe themselves. And so the five factors are openness, which is about being imaginative and creative and intellectual. Uh, extroversion, which is about being social and, and friendly. Uh, conscientiousness, which is about being organized and dependable and disciplined. Agreeableness, which is about um, cooperation and compassion. Uh, and neuroticism, which is about anxiety, depression, and, and um, emotional mood swings. Um, and so those are kind of the five factors that emerged from their statistical analysis. And we found that this test was, was uh, quite accurate at predicting these about people, whereas the Myers-Briggs style test was much less accurate. Okay, so is it about predicting someone's behavior, or is it more about just being accurately able to describe a personality? Yeah, good question. So in our test, what we did is we said, here are 37 things about someone's life that might be interesting to know, like have they been arrested, how many friends do they have, have they won awards at work, uh, and so on. And we wanted to see how well does these personality tests predict those things. And one of the really fascinating findings is that the Big Five test, which is less popular, was actually, it's less popular than the Myers-Briggs style test. It was much more accurate. And we also were able to look at, well, what happens if you use both tests together? Like maybe using both tests together is better. Well, it turns out, no, actually, adding the Myers-Briggs style results to the Big Five results didn't make it any more accurate. So there was really no reason to use the Myers-Briggs style results. Um, but we, we also tested how people feel about their results. And we found that people were more likely to say they were dissatisfied with the Big Five results. And I think that's because they can be a little more insulting. Like they can tell you you're neurotic. They can tell you you're disagreeable. Whereas the Myers-Briggs style results tend to tell you that you're great no matter how you are. Okay, why do we like to label these things? Like, why do we want to know these things about ourselves? Well, I think one of the things that people are fascinated in themselves, maybe that's a, a, a little bit of narcissism, but, you know, everyone is, is interested in themselves. But I think the, the case for these being useful, for these actually being important and interesting, is that they can give us insight about ourselves that we didn't realize. Like, many people think that the way they are is the way other people are. And you can take one of these tests and say, oh, my gosh, wow, I'm actually unusual. I thought everyone was like me. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is it can be useful for communicating. We can say to people, hey, this is my personality, and it can give them a lot of information about ourselves and lead to interesting discussions with loved ones, with friends. They can help us understand each other better. So I really do think that there's a lot of interesting and valuable use cases for personality testing. Right, but we're seeing it more and more used in kind of a corporate setting too, though, aren't we, Dr. Greenberg, where companies seem to want to know how you're going to behave before they hire you. Right. Well, you know, companies want you to perform well at your job and they want to make sure you get along well with your team. And so they're very invested in those things. And the idea is if you could use personality testing to see who's the right fit for the job or who's the right fit for the team, so that seems appealing from, from a corporate perspective. That being said, a lot of companies don't use the most accurate tests or the tests that are most predictive. And so that's kind of a funny thing is that many of them rely on tests that are actually not that accurate. Okay, so that if somebody who loves to take these tests wants to take the most accurate one or get an idea of what type of personality they have, what would you tell them to do? Well, so we actually uh, developed tests to help answer this. So what it does is it gives you your score on th the three most popular frameworks all in one test. So you can find it on our website, clearthinking.org. It's called the Ultimate Personality Test. So it's clearthinking.org. And it gives you your Myers-Briggs style results. It gives you your big five results. And it also gives you your Enneagram. So then you can compare them and see them all next to each other and contrast it. Um, so that's what I would recommend. Just don't read your horoscope is what you're saying. 
<laughs> well, you can read your horoscope, but take it with a very serious grain of salt because it's probably not going to predict a whole lot about you. Take it with a boulder of salt. Uh, Dr. Greenberg, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Dr. Spencer Greenberg is a mathematician and entrepreneur in social science and is part of this group of scientists that really broke down personality tests. You've seen them. They're all over the Internet. I've taken more than one. Um, And are they accurate? And they found that, well, no, not really. I know people love the Myers-Briggs test. They found that one wasn't really accurate. They said the one that is relatively accurate, or the most, I should say, out of the ones that they looked at is the big five personality test. I know. I'm going to go do that because I want to see how accurate it is about my personality for sure. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. For the last few years, the drumbeat was very loud for governments to do something about short-term rentals, with the long-term rental market being squeezed so tightly. Communities said they needed help in regulating and enforcing the rules around short-term rentals. So now provincial legislation is supposed to help them do that. It is meant to increase long-term supply and limit short-term rentals to a homeowner's principal residence plus a secondary suite on that site. But, and this is a big but, those rules apply to municipalities with populations of more than 10,000 people. And they can opt out if their rental vacancy rate is 3% or more for two consecutive years. So those are the kind of the windows, the loopholes that they're allowed there. But even with those carve-outs or those loopholes, some cities say it's not enough and they want more flexibility. So that's why we are talking now with Kyle Sampson, who is a counselor from the city of Prince George. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, what is the rental situation like in Prince George? You you know, it's... It's unique. Uh, We have a lot of inventory and a lot of diverse inventory. And when you look at it, we have everything from bachelor suites all the way to, you know, full three bedroom, uh, three bedroom um, houses, standalone houses, four bedroom, standalone houses, five bedroom, standalone houses. And so there's there's a really wide array of housing opportunities. And furthermore, there's a lot of um, we have a lot of basement suites. That's a that's a very um, high percentage of our of our inventory here. Okay, would you say, is it challenging to find rental or if someone needs to find some rental in Prince George, they can find it reasonably? You know, I I need to recognize that I haven't been in the position of looking to rent in a couple of years now. And so um, I haven't gone out directly shopping for that. But my understanding from talking to folks in our community, uh, talking to different residents and, and just even, you know, what you see online when you're when you're on Facebook or you see the listings, uh, it seems like there's not a great challenge to find a space. The bigger issue, to be honest, does seem to be the more the affordability piece. People, you know, are pinched for for dollars as much as they are right now. And so um, the bigger issue seems to be making sure that they can afford the space. And so, of course, that's um, that's an issue in itself. But uh, finding a place doesn't seem to be as dire of an issue at this point. Okay, so then what is it that you don't like about these new regulations that are coming into effect in a few months? Uh, the, the bigger, the big issue I, I take with uh, with this legislation, I think, is it's it's a one size fits all across the province. Uh, first and second, it's a, it's it's arbitrary in nature. Why why is it three percent um, two years in a row? Why not a three percent average? Or and, and why is it three two years in a row? Um, you know, what if next year uh, a municipality that was at 
3.2% this year, they're able to opt out and next year they go down to 2%. Does that mean that's just going to go, you know, reverse on them and they, and they can no longer have a, an opt out uh, creates a lot of uncertainty for, for communities. So uh, I just think it was a little half baked, the legislation and not, um, not well thought out. Is there a lot of short term rentals that are available in Prince George? No. So we have about, um, roughly, uh, these numbers are not hard numbers, but roughly about 300. And so that's, that's less than 1% of our total uh, housing inventory in the community. Okay, so do you want to keep those? I mean, is that what the concern is here to say, hey, listen, we'd like to still have these short-term rentals? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So yeah, the City of Prince George uh, on Monday at our council meeting, um, council unanimously voted to ask the province to opt out despite not quite meeting their 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 numbers and so last year we were at 2.8 percent uh the year before we were at 3.7 and so if it was on an average basis we'd be okay but because it's on a, a strict you know that's the number uh we did not quite make the cut by 0.2 percent so we've asked to opt out the reason being uh like i said one size doesn't necessarily fit all and so there was a lot of reasons around the table of council. Um, the statistics are, you know, skewed very much one way. They don't accurately represent our, our market necessarily. The CHM the CHMC uh, statistics, you know, are not a great picture at our community's uh, rental inventory. But the big one is, um, you know, we're not a Kelowna or a Victoria or Penticton or even Vancouver where the tourism market um, is driving most of our long-term rentals, you know, or short-term rentals, rather. A lot of the, the use of those are medical professionals coming and providing services in our community for a period of time, or uh, it's people coming for treatment from throughout the north, uh, coming in for maybe it's cancer treatment or some sort of medical treatment, or, you know, some of it is tourism. Some of it is um, sports teams coming in for, for tournaments. And so there, there are definitely tourism uses, but it's a different it's a different market than what you would see in some of these other uh, other municipalities. So you feel is Prince George unique enough that it deserves just a, a little bit more consideration on this front? Actually, uh, I would say for sure about Prince George, but I would say all municipalities are pretty unique uh, among each other. And that's that's where we struggle with sometimes one size fits all legislation. I want to recognize, I understand governments, including municipalities, sometimes have to put things in uh, for residents that it doesn't necessarily work for all or for one individual but it works for all overall the best and so i recognize that sometimes it is tough to build these legislations but um in this case it's not working and so yeah i think we do have a unique enough situation that uh we want the province to look at our numbers our stats and uh and our plight and and reevaluate uh whether or not we can opt out all right councillor sampson has there been any indication from the province that they would take a look at this zero at this point, uh, but uh, we're optimistic. We're going to put together our, our information and our stats and our facts. Um, we're going to share that it was, you know, a unanimous decision of council, which I, I do think uh, is a, a highlight worth uh, showing the province. And uh, we're going to make the best case we can and, and hope for the best when it comes to, um, you know, trying to keep that autonomy of decision-making here in our community. Do you think that Prince George needs any kind of regulations when it comes to short-term rentals, or do you think the market is just, it's just really not big enough for that? No, you know, I, I'm willing to say um, that I think there's always opportunity to look at that. Uh, do I have uh, the idea or the solution on how to regulate that best rate now? No, but 
yeah, I think we could definitely go away and, and do some some looking at at, uh, at maybe a bylaw for our community with it when it comes to short term rentals. Um, there was some ideas shared around the table, so maybe that that conversation can be had, uh, especially if the province is you know interested in, in that being the case. But um, I do think that it's not necessarily a, a massive um, stress point on our rental market in, in the community. And so first and foremost, I want to make sure that we provide some certainty to those professionals that are using those spaces, um, patients and others that are using those spaces in our community. And then we can work with the province if they're interested, or we can do that, you know, with our own, uh, on our own here in the community to come up with, uh, you know, regulations that work best for Prince George. Right. I understand that, like, you know, there is a deadline to file uh, with the province if you would like an exemption. Is Prince George going to try that? Yeah, today is the deadline. So we are going to have our, our staff are working really hard. We've got a great staff here at the city of Prince George um, with a very tight notice. Um, council gave them direction to uh, turn around and opt out. So they've been working hard on that package. So that'll be sent off to the province. All right. We'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. That is Kyle Sampson, a city councillor from Prince George. So as you heard, Prince George will also try for an exemption to the short-term rental legislation. Now, that legislation is coming to effect on May the 1st, but as Councillor Sampson just indicated there, today, February 29th, is the deadline for uh, communities to file uh, an exemption, essentially, saying that we would like to be exempt from this. Some communities are, have done this already. Dawson Creek, uh, Fort St. John, sounds like Prince George is going to do it, saying that we, we don't want to have these short-term rental legislations apply to us. And that is because their situation is unique. It does sound like Prince George is a little unique on that front. Uh, but overall, will most communities fall under this legislation. Now, as I said, that comes into effect on May the 1st. We will see what the province has to say about this. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of stories about this in the news recently. It isn't always easy to hold on to the catalytic converter in your car these days. Stolen converters are an ongoing problem for ICBC, costing more than $8 million in just the first seven months of 2023. I mean, that is huge for one item in a vehicle. People have them stolen from their vehicles that are sitting right in the front driveway of their homes too. So obviously there's been a number of things that have been raised about, look, how do we approach this? What do we do? Richmond is actually trying something different to try and combat this. Uh, The Richmond RCMP is actually recommending this program. It was initiated by them and the city of Richmond and ICBC. It's called You Etch It, We Catch It. So it's about engraving like a label right onto the catalytic converter. Now, our Scott Shantz had a chance to speak with Corporal Dennis Huang of the Richmond RCMP to find out more about this. So uh, if if I use an analogy with um, some other different products that have been stolen in the past, let's say bicycles, um, normally a lot of um, those type of things don't have any identifying marks. uh, So it's hard to prove uh, who might have been the owner of that product. So what this program is is trying to do is is provide the owners of their catalytic converters a way for uh, them to track those catalytic converters and as well as help the police track back the stolen catalytic converters to their rightful owners. Um, Also, it's to warn the thieves that, you know, these items are being marked, right? So hopefully the value of them will 
be less than something that is and get a hold of. Right. Now, the way that you're describing it with these these brokers, that seems um, like sophisticated, sort of high-level criminality. Are these the type of uh, businesses or people that are going to be deterred by just having an engraving, uh, an etching on the catalytic converter? If it means that they can just you know, sell them in bulk and they know they're just going to be broken down, will, you know, and will that etching actually uh, discourage criminality? We believe it will. I mean, typically it's you're selling in bulk, right? You're not going to be just selling one at a time. You have to collect them. You have to store them. You have to transport them. So if, if we're identifying ones that are actually stolen, we can place them with certain owners. We can place them with certain uh you know, files that were uh, initiated by various police agencies, um, that makes prosecution a lot more smoother. Sure. Okay. Um, and where can people go to get one of their, uh, to get their catalytic converter engraved if they want to uh, take some action on this? Or where can they find a list of shops that are doing it? Uh, you can check up our website, and we have a list of uh, 10 gracious uh, shops within Richmond that have uh, you know, jumped on the opportunity uh, to be part of this program. It's of no cost. You do not have to be a, a resident of Richmond, but it's something where, you know, if you bring your vehicle in for other types of service at one of these shops, uh, you know, at the same time, you could have your catalytic converter engraved. Okay, that sounds really interesting. This might be something that I think a lot of people would find appealing. So the program is called You Etch It, We Catch It, initiated by Richmond RCMP, City of Richmond, and ICBC. They're trying to reduce the thefts of catalytic converters. I also think there is definitely an onus on the places that are buying this, right, that are buying these catalytic converters. There is a market there. So if you are one of those shops that is buying these, the fact that there is a a uh, number that is etched on there should tell you, huh, maybe I should find out where this came from, that there is an obligation there. You can't just sell it on and say, well, I didn't know where it came from. No, no, you have the ability to find out exactly where that came from. And so, yeah, there should be there should be some kind of punishment for that, right? Some kind of consequences for that. So participating auto service shops, if you're interested in this, Canadian Tire, Hoagler's Muffler City, these are all in Richmond, of course, Ironwood Auto Service, Cal Tire, Midas Minute Tune and Brake, uh, Redline Automotive, Richmond Motor Works. So check that out. Uh, Richmond RCMP is definitely um, facilitating this to make that happen. Sad that it has come to this, but hopefully this will deter some of those catalytic converter thefts that are going on out there.